following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. How many of you guys uh, like playing, I've got this app on my phone, you guys familiar with Elevate or Luminosity, Lumosity, whatever it is? Yeah, some of you guys use that. It's a little app, and it's uh, little games to help you in different areas of writing, listening, speaking, reading, math, things like that. So that's how I get my kicks, is playing (laughs) nerdy games. Um, My lowest scores out of the things I just mentioned are speaking and math. (laughs) And so I am going to speak today. I thought maybe do like the 70 weeks of Daniel or something like that. That would be fun. I can use you as practice for my two categories that I need help on. Um, We will not do that. And uh, this is for free. If you try to figure out the 70 weeks of Daniels using math, you are off to a a bad start figuring out what that's supposed to mean anyway. So don't use math for the 70 weeks of Daniel. Uh, Turn to Luke 9, all right? Luke 9. Back in March, Stacy and the rest of us were at an elders retreat. We were talking through the the preaching plan for the summer. And, uh, of course, we finished Mark, and so... Summer being what, is, what it is, uh, similar to holiday weekends, a lot of people are gone and in and out throughout the summer. We didn't want to start a new series until September when everybody's back for a new year of school. And so we said, how, what do we want to do as we work through the summer um, to not just make it like we're just trying to you know, pass the time until September? What do we want to do that's going to actually be really pertinent and relevant to us? And so um, there is the church history series that we're going to start next week that we're going to run through a couple months, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, We're going to look at different um, events and characters in church history and see that it's not just something that's meant for the history books and facts and dates and all that, but um, the way that God used those people and events still play out, whether we realize it or not, into who we are as a church today. So we're going to draw some of those connections, and hopefully it will be pastoral as well, that we leave not just learning facts about history, but we... Uh, leave having our hearts encouraged by, by the truth of the gospel once again and the way that the Spirit worked in the lives of people and through events. So that's happening, but we were talking about the month of May, and so it was decided that just different of the elders here would take, take opportunity to, to share uh, just kind of what Stacy just said, like, let's just do, like, just share what's on your heart, what you're passionate about, what you feel God's working in your life with. And so I was even over the past few weeks, trying to figure out what is it exactly that I want to be talking about. And then last week, I was talking to somebody. They've been here a couple weeks, and they came by to ask about the city, like how to get on the city. And they said basically like this. It might not be verbatim, but they basically said they heard you are the city. They said that to me. Um, For those of you who don't know, the city is like our little connective uh, type website where we can stay connected throughout the week and things. And so I laugh. We were laughing about that. Like, I'm the one that's trying to promote the city and get it running and talking about it all the time. And so the reputation is, I am the city now. So I was like, well, there you go. I mean, that's what I can talk about. Apparently, that's what I'm passionate about, right? Um, How can I spiritualize social media in the city for 35 minutes? I mean, that was like a big conundrum for me. And then I realized the conundrum should be, when have I ever spoken for only 35 minutes? That's really what I should be worrying about. Um, so, so um, I am not going to talk about the city today. Um, we are going to talk about much more important things. Um, this is, in a sense, um, something that God has been working uh, in me. Um, I feel like it's been something God's been working on us as a church. Of course, you see we've turned to a gospel, and so we've been in Mark for years now, and we know that Luke and Mark are synoptic gospels, and so you're thinking, oh no, we're going to get the same stories warmed over. We're just going to look at it from a different author's perspective. That might be a little true to some respects. Um, and yet I hope that there are things that by now should be kind of ingrained in our, our heads, if not yet our hearts and our hands should be ingrained in our heads so that it actually kind of gives us a good basis, a good backdrop for what I want to look at today. Um, and uh, again, I am not, I don't claim to be a preacher, a speaker, and so there's no sense trying to be that. I'm more of just a, a conversationalist. I don't claim to be a good one of those either, um, and yet that's just kind of more my, my manner. So today we just want to walk and talk through this passage. I feel like um, this was all part of the master plan now. I'm kind of ending the month 
of being the different elders that have come up and spoken, and then Stacy will start speaking next Sunday, and I feel like I'm kind of like the John the Baptist preparing the way for the one to come back and speak, and I must decrease so he can increase kind of thing. Like, I'm, I'm starting to get this now. Like, I see what you're doing here, guys. Um, so, so here I am. I am not eating locusts or anything like that, but I am coming just to speak uh, some things that we have already talked about, and then hopefully, too, to prepare the way for seeing, I, th- I think, I hope, that even as we work through this church history series, we're going to see some of these truths playing out, because these truths we're going to look at are about Jesus sending out his apostles, starting out this, this act of giving authority to his children and sending them out to go do the same things that he came to earth to do. Um, And so as we study church history, hopefully we see that that's actually continuing, right? It didn't just end in the Gospels. It didn't just end in in Acts or the Epistles, the early church. So hopefully we start to see these things bear themselves out past the first couple centuries of of Christ as well. Um, So we're going to be in Luke 9 and 10. That's going to be our main main, uh, passage for the next few minutes. The parallel passages, though, are found in Mark 6. So we've already worked through Mark 6. Uh, that was a couple of years ago now. But we've seen these stories, um, or most of them, presented in a different way, a certain way, through the author of Mark in Mark 6. And then uh, Matthew 9 and 10 would be uh, the parallel passage um, in Matthew's account. And so I might reference um, one or two of those this morning, yet um, we'll spend the majority of our time in Luke. Let me just uh, read a couple of verses from chapters 9 and 10 to kind of give us the, the basis, we'll pray, and then we'll start to dig into some of the passages in between 9 and 10 as well, all right? So Luke 9, uh, we'll read the first few chapters here. I'll tell you where I'm going so you can follow along. And Jesus called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, "'Take nothing for your journey.'" No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. We see in verse 10 that Luke makes note that on their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done. And then he took them and withdrew, and on they went on their journey. And several things take place through the rest of chapter 9. And we come to chapter 10, verse 1. After this, after all these things that transpired through chapter 9, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And then Luke tells us in verse 17 that the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's go to heaven in prayer. God, we approach you this morning. Uh, We are just simply asking for things that you have told us to ask of freely. We're asking that you would come and gather with us as your people meet. You are doing that through the presence of your spirit in us. Um, We ask that 
a spirit present with us would do the work that only he can do through your word. Um, And we're asking that our ears would be attentive to hear, that our minds would be able to interact with what you're teaching us in this passage, and that um, we would not just be hearers of the word, but then we would then go and be doers of the word. Um, So guide our time here, God. Um, Use your word, not my own, to penetrate hearts, change our affections, drive us out into your creation that you are restoring for your glory, for our good. Give us strength to endure and joy in the journey, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to just kind of go back and look at a couple of things we just read and just make some notes, maybe try to answer our questions and set the stage a little bit. And then what we're going to spend the bulk of our time doing is looking at the end of chapter 9 and the end of chapter 10. So looking at how God sends each group out and then what happens after that. Um, When you read the Gospels, it can be easy, I think, sometimes for us to just have the mentality that we're reading a, a history where it's just like, you know, God worked through... Mark and Matthew and Luke and John to just quick write down record what what Jesus did so we can have it on record and show that this actually happened and that's all that we're reading so we're reading and we're like okay Jesus talked great that looks good okay he heals he does some stuff that's kind of strange that that was funny that that happened okay we go and we do more and and uh, while these things are certainly historical we need to remember as we've learned I think so well through Mark that Luke is compiling his own message to his own readers. Um, And that's going to be a little bit distinct from Mark. Uh, And it's going to be distinct, of course, from from John uh, and and Matthew as well. And so they're not not, uh, twisting the truth. They're not saying anything different than the other authors are saying, of course. And yet, Luke has his own goals. He has his own desires for his hearers. And so as we read these little kind of vignettes of stuff that's happening along the way, we can't just see them as, yeah, they're there for us to kind of just go back and see what, what happened. We have to see them as part of a bigger plan that Luke has to teach us something, not just about the words on paper, not just about what is literally going on there, but Luke has a story that he's telling through what happens in the stories as well. Um, and we need to be attentive to them, and there's a lot to learn from here. Um, as I've gone through these chapters the last couple of weeks and just... Man, there are so many, so many things that I think hit home to us, so many applications, and so we're just going to highlight a few of them. Um, and then I'll tell you this too. I'm not going to really be going like through point one, point two, point three. I'm just going to be making some observations. Hopefully those observations um, drive home the application, and they are observations for us so that we, we get it very clearly, okay? Um, and what we're going to see, I want us to, to know what we're going to be seeing as we go through here. As we're going to be seeing, again, we've seen this in Mark already, we're going to be seeing the paradox of the kingdom, that yes, Christ is ruling and reigning over all of his creation right now, today, and yet that's a lot of times really, really hard to see. Um, How is he doing that? Um, What type of way is his kingdom coming that he is announcing very clearly it has come in his person and work? And so we're seeing both the kingdom coming in to this age, um, and we're seeing this battle of good and evil in the midst of it. Um, We're seeing power and glory, but we're also seeing humility. We're seeing suffering. And all of those play out in tension in one way or another as we dig into the text and we see ourselves as being sent ones on the heels of these disciples. Um, I'll mention two terms as well, just so we can be thinking in these terms and we can be seeing them, because as we come to every fact or every observation, we're going to see one or both of these at play. And they're both really important for us to remember as far as application goes. Um, here are the words. They're, they're, they're long words, um, somewhat. Uh, <clears throat> they are terms to um, be used by pastors and theologians so that they can feel like they've actually accomplished something um, and feel good about themselves, right? The, the first word is eschatology, all right? Eschatology, essentially the study of last things, right? And a lot of times if you are familiar with the word eschatology, you might immediately think to like the book of Revelation and all the stuff you can't figure out in Revelation. And yet eschatology is one of the main themes through all of Scripture. 
it's, it's there, and it's, it's in very real ways showing itself right now in our time and place. Um, we are uh, living in uh, this season where God's kingdom has come and is coming. It's not in its fullness yet, but it is showing itself in very unorthodox ways, and um, yet we also find ourselves still in a world that's ruled by principalities and powers and those that are against the goals and plan of of Jesus. And so eschatology is playing out right now. That's the church lives in the last days. Um, And then there are two uh, describers of this eschatology. So the first word is under-realized eschatology, and the other word is over-realized eschatology. All right, so that makes it pretty simple. One is under-realized, one is over-realized, and hopefully you can kind of figure out what those terms are are meaning. An under-realized eschatology means that there might not be um, a really strong understanding of the fact that God's kingdom is presenting itself in multiple ways right now, today. It, you know, it's maybe, yeah, okay, we get it, we understand what God's kingdom is, but man, we sure don't see it playing out in the world today. So whatever form that under-realized eschatology takes. The over-realized then would say, you know, Christ has come, he's victorious, Satan, sin, and death have been destroyed, and so let's, let's go do it. In power and glory, let's just, you know, change the world. Boom, it should be really easy, right? Um, and, and in an over-realized eschatology, we're forgetting the other side of the coin, that we still live in the world that Jesus is redeeming and restoring, a world that Paul calls in Romans 10, uh, one that is in uh, child pains. It's like going through labor and it's groaning and longing for when the kingdom comes in fullness. Um, and so the over-realized eschatology shows itself in many ways too. So I throw those things out there because I think they're helpful guides for us. And as we look at these disciples uh, in chapters 9 and 10, we're going to see the various ways they don't understand Jesus's message. And the ways they don't understand Jesus's message is shown in their either thinking the kingdom is needs to come in its fullness right now, or they're not believing that the power of the kingdom is theirs in certain senses right now. So just a couple quick things about Luke 9 and 10. So um, we have Luke is the one, really the only one that's, that's speaking to the fact that Jesus sends the 12 and then also sends the 70 or the 72. Um, so that's unique to Luke, and he has a point in doing that. <coughs> Excuse me. If you go back and read Matthew and Mark, you'll see some of Luke's writing kind of collapse down into a shorter story um, in, in Matthew and Luke. So some of the words, some of the text about the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Uh, Matthew has that text coming before Jesus sends the 12 out. All right, so he's using that lesson in a different part of his uh, point and what he's trying to get across to his hearers. Luke's talking about that in the context of when the 70, 72 are sent out. Um, Just to understand it very high level, I think what Luke is trying to present is that as Jesus' gospel of the kingdom goes out, we have just seen um, in the chapters leading up to this, Jesus Jesus is going out and demonstrating what the gospel of the kingdom is uh, through 10 or 12 um, instances of healing, of casting out demons, And he's doing that while proclaiming the kingdom of God has come. And so we find now that he gives authority to the 12 and sends them out to essentially do the same thing. He gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. He sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. There's nothing that these people are sending, being sent out to do that's any different than what Jesus is already being, has already been doing, okay? It's not that he's giving them now new tasks or and large tasks. He's basically saying, you've been following me. You've been, you've been you know, with me the last few chapters as you've heard me proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel. And now I'm giving you the power and authority to go do the same thing. Um, so he's commissioning them to go and do that. And I think there's symbolic um, importance with the fact that Luke presents them 12 going out first. He's showing that this gospel of the kingdom is going to go to Israel. And Israel is to hear Uh, And then there is the symbolism of the 70 or 72 going out to speak to the fact that this is a message, ultimately, the gospel of the kingdom isn't just for national Israel. It's not just to go uh, to these uh, chosen people, but it is to go 
to the whole world. Um, and there's uh, lots of symbolism in there of, of the fact that Jesus is coming and doing what Israel didn't do, right? If you think about it, Israel was commissioned by God not just to be this chosen nation for their own sake, but they were supposed to be a city set on the hill, and they were supposed to be a light to the Gentile nations around them. They were supposed to testify to the fact that they worshiped the one true God and, um, in essence, welcome the other nations to do the same. Israel, of course, doesn't do that, and so Jesus comes, and he is the fulfillment of Israel. He is the fruition these chosen people, just like he's the second Adam, doing what Adam didn't do or couldn't do, he is now Israel doing what Israel didn't do, couldn't do. And so he goes to Israel, but ultimately he's saying again, this message of the kingdom is for the whole world. Um, and so the significance of the 70 or 72, um, a lot of old manuscripts have here not 72, but just 70. Um, and there's a little bit of discrepancy there, and it's really tied down to like what people think that symbolism is referring to. So the 70 um, is referring to back um, right after the flood, Noah, you have the Noah narrative, and then you have right before, um, I believe it's the Tower of Babel institu- in, uh, incidents, you have uh, the, what's called the Table of Nations. And so you basically have a genealogy of, of uh, Noah's sons and their descendants, 70 people groups that are described here. And so it's known as the table of nations. And so there's significance, the fact that this is symbolizing that now you have 70 going out to go to the nations. Um, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament translated it as 72. Some people think it's because um, you know, Moses had 72 elders, and so there's symbolism there. Whatever the case, see that what Luke is trying to portray here is that this message, while Jesus is working um, within uh, his people, with, with the Jews, this message is ultimately not to end there. And he is doing something far bigger, and he is finally doing what was intended all along by sending them all out. And we see Jesus give them instructions in both accounts just to go and how to go. Um, I don't really want to hit all the reasons why uh, those instructions are there, but um, it just stands in contrast to maybe what some other followers of a rabbi would have done at that time. Um, other followers of rabbis that would have been sent out to, to speak on behalf of that rabbi would have brought along changes of clothing. They would have done things a certain way. And Jesus is speaking um, to them and saying, just do it, just do it differently. Um, and there is reason for doing that um, based on what their message is, who they're going to, um, what they portray about the message as they go just this life of simplicity and dependence. Um, they're sending the message of the kingdom that is a message of wholeness, of completeness. And we see a lot of um, imagery of, of peace and speaking of peace and welcoming people of peace in. Um, so just some overall observations there. Uh, something else that strikes me is we don't know how long this was. It's easy for us to kind of read this and, you know, you read and you hear Jesus, and especially in chapter 10, he sends them out. Jesus says some stuff and, you know, by the next column of your Bible, they're already back all excited about what happened, right? We don't know how long this was. It could have been, um, you know, a week. It could have been months, honestly. I, I would tend to think it's probably a longer period of time than a shorter period of time. Um, they're being sent out and learning some things. If you look at Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 10, um, it's interesting that on the heels of Jesus sending out the 12, starting in verses 16 and following, Jesus warns them, as you go, it's not going to be easy. You're going to face persecution. Uh, and so he's speaking of the fact that, you know, he's talking about the fact that um, you will be persecuted, um, you will flee from one town to the next, um, and he's talking about um, using imagery of being put to death and all these things. And so there were some, probably some interesting stories that the disciples came back with. Now, I do definitely think that Matthew is not just speaking about this instance, but Matthew's also looking ahead to um, what it's going to be when the church is going out as a whole. And there are multitudes upon multitudes of disciples going out and I mean, all you have to do is read the book of Acts, right? And you see Matthew's verbiage in uh, chapter 10, 16, and following. You see it playing out through, through the whole book of Acts. Um, and so there is, uh, 
maybe some stuff that's happening to these disciples as they go, as Jesus sends them. But there's also this uh, reminder that as this pattern starts and picks up, and as the church continues to be sent in this way, they're going to face these things. So again, we don't have time to kind of go through and dig deep into all of the preparatory stuff, but what I want us to really see is what's happening after Jesus sends his people. And really in chapters 9 and uh, the middle part of chapter 10, I'm going to just pull a few things out here um, that, as I've been reading, have struck me uh, because this is really where the rubber meets the road. We, we are these people, and I know Stacy has, has mentioned this as we've gone through Mark. We are these disciples um, as we go. We are the ones that sometimes still aren't fully understanding. We're still um, maybe treading water. We're still fighting to believe this message of Jesus, um, and yet we're also those who have learned a lot since these disciples. Um, and so I, I see a lot of me, I see a lot of us in these responses and what the disciples are going through. But as we go through this, be thinking that. Let's not look at these as the other, like, oh, those disciples, why weren't they getting it? How come they weren't seeing it? Let's, let's see us in these stories because we do these same things. We have these same weaknesses. And also see yourself as a continuation of just, this is a ragtag bunch of people, right? When you read the list in each of the synoptic gospels of who these 12 were, that, that list isn't there to wow you and say, oh, wow, Jesus, man, he picked the elite. I mean, I mean, how can anybody stand in the way if he's sending these 12 out, right? It, it, the response should actually be a little the opposite. Like, really, Jesus? Like, of all the people in, in uh, Judah, Samaria, well, Samaria, picking somebody from Samaria would have been questionable at that time, but, but uh, in, in Judah and this land that you're in, all the people, that's who you're going to pick? Doesn't that sound kind of like the presidential race right now? Um, uh, um, so we should be reading this and we should be thinking, wow, God's going to do something. He's given this ragtag crew power and authority to cast out demons, to speak truth, to heal people, and proclaim and demonstrate the announcement of the kingdom. Yeah, and nothing really has changed. Uh, we are the same ragtag group of people um, on a mission that is only based in Christ's power, Christ's authority, not in anything we are able to do, um, and not in who we are. Um, and that is part of what God's kingdom is about, not making much of the ones involved in it, but making much of him. So we see in verse or chapter 9, <clears throat> the 12 are sent out. And um, I'm not going to focus on any reason as to why verses 7 or 7 through 9 are there. There is a point, but I don't want to hit on that this morning. I just want to kind of look again at the next episode in verses 10 and following. The apostles come back, and Luke just says that they told them what they had done. So stuff apparently had happened, right? It's not like they're coming back and it's an utter failure. Um, the things that they had done were, uh, without a doubt, the things that Christ had commissioned them and empowered them to go and do, and they did. Um, and so they, they head out together. But we see that even though they're trying to get away, the crowds follow them. They know where they're going, so they find them. And Jesus ends up uh, teaching thousands of people on a hillside one day. And it's dinner time. And the disciples, like any normal person would do, would say, you know, hey guys, we've got, it's dinner time. We've, we've got to do something here. Let's take care of these people, right? Um, this guy's a good uh, type of process manager, these guys, right? They, they are thinking, hey, what, we've got a problem. Let's take, let's take care of it. Um, so I can resonate with that. And so they're saying, let's, let's get them out. Let's send them into town. Let's let them go get the food they need. Um, we've done enough here for the day. Um, so we see that in verse 12. Send the crowd away to go to the surrounding villages, find lodging, find places to rest, find, get provisions. We're in a desolate place. And it strikes me uh, that Jesus' response is, and I don't know how you read this phrase, but I read it like this, you get them something to eat. You do it. Don't send, don't send them out to go take care of these themselves. You get them something to eat. 
And their response, like any, again, probably normal person would be, would be one of um, Jesus. You know, like, um, you need to lie down a little bit. Are you a little overtired? Are you not recognizing the fact that there's nothing here? That's kind of the point of why we're saying maybe they should go find some food. We've got nothing for them here. And so in one sense, we read it, and we're like, well, yeah, very matter-of-factly, like, this is what the disciples should be doing, and they're caring about these people. And yet, this is coming on the heels of what? They have just been sent to go heal, cast out demons, and announce the kingdom of God. What we should be seeing here, and I think this is why Luke gives it to us, is that the disciples should have been doing exactly what Jesus tells them to do. You get them something to eat. The disciples have been given power and authority to do things, to announce the coming of the kingdom and the presence of the kingdom. And look what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't send them out. He doesn't, he doesn't go and... Uh, just say, guys, find rest tonight. Go find food. He does what only he can do and provides food for them all, or what we think only he can do. Jesus, on the other hand, though, thinks this is something the disciples can do. He's given them the ability to provide for these people, and in so doing, uh, announce the coming of the kingdom. Um, I, when I was reading this and thinking about it, it, it struck me, um, and there are multiple ways, I'm sure, to apply this. Um, and again, have, these, have this mind of the over-realized and under-realized aspects of the kingdom here, okay? Um, the disciples didn't think this was important, right? Maybe in their minds they thought, well, like healing people, making them whole again, that's, that's amazing. That's like top tier. God's given us, Jesus has given us power and authority for that. Or, man, casting out demons, that's 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 powerful stuff. That speaks a lot. Getting, getting them food. How are we going to provide for them food? That seems kind of menial. It seems kind of ordinary. Um, and yet, the way Christ does it is anything but. Um, and it, it just reminds me, trying to bring it, again, like just home to me uh, right now and to us, about the fact that we understand that the kingdom comes not in power, but in weakness. Not in glory, not in the ways that these disciples and Israel was wanting their Messiah to come. They were, they were wanting an overthrow. They're wanting a revolution, right? They're wanting shock and all. That's what they're waiting for. And Jesus comes and, and sorely disappoints a lot of them. Uh, and yet we understand that's how Christ's kingdom comes. And so as we find ourselves as sent ones, in the same way that these people were sent, these ragtag group of men were sent, are we seeing the things that happen in the same way? Are we responding to normal, everyday occurrences in the same way that the disciples respond to them? Or are we responding to them in the way Christ might have us respond to them? I'm not asking you to go perform miracles, to think that all of a sudden you've got the ability to go out and um, you know, make a big fellowship for din dinner for us after the service. Um, that might be nice, but... That's not what I'm meaning. I'm simply meaning that if we understand the kingdom as we've been talking about it for years now, as we understand that it comes with power, but that power is subversive, that power is countercultural, that, counter, that power is paradoxical, how many opportunities do we pass up and try to handle in normal, everyday ways that anybody could handle? You know, you don't need any power, you don't need any authority from Christ to take care of them, and we miss opportunities to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel in ways that would be powerful. So I simply call us to think about the fact that the little things that God gives us, the things that we might think are ordinary, the things that we might think are menial, um, in many ways, are opportunities to, to announce the kingdom of God and in mighty ways. They might not even show themselves. They probably won't show themselves as mighty. Uh, and yet, in the currency of the kingdom, they're powerful things. I don't know where everybody is, what you're going through. I don't know who you're interacting with, what opportunities you're having to share the gospel with others. But ask for the Spirit to be um, helping you listen to His Word and respond to His Word, respond to the Spirit prompting you to to see the ordinary things, see everyday things that come up as more than just um, ordinary things, more than just interruptions, but something that 
is uh, for the good of, of God's kingdom. So these guys aren't realizing that they have the power necessary to do what Christ ends up doing. Um, there's an under-realized eschatology here, and I think sometimes in a lot of ways we function the same way. We don't understand that the kingdom has come and it is going to be powerful. Uh, it is not going to look like what we think power and glory should look like all the time, and yet it has come and God has empowered us as individuals and as his church. Um, he's dwelling in us as his temple. Um, just, I mean, run, run that through your mind for a little bit. Um, think about the power and authority that he's given his people through his word, through his spirit, to be demonstrating, proclaiming this kingdom. So that's one thing that I noticed that the disciples don't quite get. Jesus continues on talking about the difficulty of discipleship, taking up their cross. These are things that we really uh, hammered through the Gospel of Mark. Um, and we come to the transfiguration. This is something we saw in Mark as well, and I'm not going to belabor it for too long. Uh, but we simply see here Jesus is with, he's there on the mountain with his disciples, and he has a conversation um, with Moses, with Elijah. Luke is the one person that tells us that this conversation is about Jesus' pending leaving. It's about his impending death. Jesus has just spoken of his death back in verse 21. He's going to speak of it again uh, in uh, verses 43, 44, 45. And so then we see this actual instance where Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah about it. And this, pretty, this, this wows the disciples. Like this is, this is the kind of stuff that like preaches to disciples, right? They're like, oh, power, glory, revolution. This is awesome. Like Elijah has come. Moses has come. You know, the place is shining, it's bright, it's white, like, this is what we've been waiting for. And Peter's excited, he's like, let's, let's, like, set up monuments, let's set up temples, let's do all this stuff, let's, let's focus into right here, right now, and, again, they miss the point, okay? Again, it's an over-realized eschatology. They, they want Christ's kingdom in its fullness right now, right there. Let's just, like, let it be, let it be done, and let's just... Like bask in the status quo. Let's just bask in, in a static existence with, with this glory right here. He's totally missing the fact that they are called right now to be sent. Look at the instructions that Jesus gives them. This is not a like, let's set up your place and hunker down and, and just stay and be comfortable. That's not that at all. They're, they're being sent and told to walk in reliance on the power and authority that Jesus has given to them. Uh, they are being called exiles. And again, remember this. We don't have time to do this all this, with all of these, but remember Luke is writing Luke and Acts, right? He's not writing two separate things. There's, uh, as Luke is writing Luke, he's thinking of Acts and vice versa, okay? So the whole story of God's people growing and expanding through the power of the Spirit continues in his book and Acts. And so we see this in lots of ways that these disciples are not called to be to set up a, a kingdom here, an earthly kingdom. They're not called to set up their own little fortress and make a name for themselves. These people are constantly on the move. They're constantly in exile. They're sojourners. We read a lot of the epistles, and the epistles start that way. You think of the epistle to, to um, uh, the, the ones that were dispersed that Peter is writing to. They're, they're exiles, and uh, Peter reminds them, don't get upset about the fact that you're in exile. This is for a purpose. This, is, this was planned before time for you to be in exile. This is for your sanctification and obedience and um, ultimately for the good of the, those around you that you will minister to and demonstrate and proclaim the gospel to. Um, so again, the disciples are missing it. They're wanting uh, what is promised to come in fullness someday in the kingdom, but they're wanting it now. They're not understanding that there's a process to this uh, one that is purposeful, and they're not understanding what they're called to do and to be um, at this time. So we find ourselves in the same category a lot, I think. We, we don't like, as one author calls it, the underside of glory. We find ourselves in the underside of glory a lot, and we struggle against it. We struggle on the one hand because we want 
the fullness right now, right? We, we just want it. You see it in our consumeristic society all the time. We go looking for it in all the wrong places, um, and yet we want it. We want comfort. We want rest and peace. We want uh, a name for ourselves. We want to find worth and value in certain things. And um, man, the message of the cross, the message of the fact that we're exiles in the midst of that is just totally counterintuitive, totally countercultural. So again, let's not over-realize eschatology. Let's realize that in one sense, the power of the kingdom has come and is in us. It is realized. It is here. Um, and yet, it is not showing itself in its fullness yet. So there will be rest. There will be peace. There is hope. All those things are part of what we announce. But we do so as we go, as exiles. Um, the third thing we see here is uh, <clears throat> the disciples in the next instance um, are unable to cast a demon out of this child. And so the father brings the child and is just begging for this child to be healed. This child goes into crazy seizures and all this horrible stuff's happening to him because of this demon. And the father says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't. Begged that they would do it, and they couldn't. And Jesus answers, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And when you read that, who do you think Jesus is speaking to? Do you read that and think that he's responding to the Father? I'm going to say that he's saying that to his disciples, not the Father. Right? It's, it's that whole like, oh, guys, you know, what am I going to do with you? You are not getting it. This is, this is, again, another instance of them missing what they've already missed in the, the episode of feeding the crowds. And it's interesting that Jesus uses the word, oh, faithless and twisted generation. He's using a phrase that the uh, nation of Israel would have known all too well from the law, from Deuteronomy, where there's really God speaking about the fact that Israel would not keep the law. They would not honor the commandments. They would not do what they've been designed to do. Um, and he speaks of Israel as a wicked and perverse and twisted generation. And he does so uh, because they have chosen not to listen to God. They've chosen not to hear his word. They've chosen not to love him and serve him. And that's the context in which God calls Israel a twisted and perverse generation. They are hearing God speak to them. They are, they're seeing him demonstrate who he is in front of their faces on the mountain, and yet they don't listen. They don't have ears to hear. They don't believe. And so it's interesting that Jesus is saying that it wasn't about, you know, the disciples didn't do the right abracadabra to fix this. They weren't doing it like they didn't have the wrong process and they forgot the magical formula. It's not that. It's, it's a matter of the heart. They were not having ears to hear, eyes to see. They were not listening. The same lesson that God was uh, teaching Israel is the same uh, point that Jesus is making to his disciples here when he says the reason that they can't do this really is because they are not loving the Lord God, they're not walking in his ways, they're not getting it yet. Same thing for us. How often do we not love and pursue Christ? How Often do we not have ears to hear? I mean, do we not fight for belief? Um, and in so doing, we don't have the opportunities, see the opportunities, take advantage of the opportunities that God is giving to us to be uh, salt, to be salt and light in the midst of our everyday. Um, we see the self-righteousness of the disciples. Jesus is trying to teach them a point of bringing a child to them and saying, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, verse 48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And he's teaching them a lesson there. He's reminding them again of his impending death, that this is the message of the kingdom, that he must go and suffer and die. And the disciples in the midst of that are having an argument of who of them gets to be like top of the, top of the pyramid scheme, right? Who of them gets to be the the chief among the disciples. In the midst of having the gospel of the kingdom taught and exemplified to them, 
they're more focused on themselves. They're more focused on what they want and hope to get, hope to grasp. We are the same ragtag group of people, so often wanting something for ourselves and not being satisfied to be the simple tools uh, that God has designed us to be, the conduit through which his kingdom goes forth. Um, we're not described as, um, as much. <laughs> uh, God's disciples are described as uh, the weak, the foolish, against um, the wisdom of the world. We're described as sheep. I mean, Jesus says that you're, he's sending them as sheep, sending us as sheep into wolves. Um, not like the best pep talk battle cry you're ever going to read, right? Um, it is true, and yet the message that the sheep take uh, overcomes the wolves. So they're self-righteous. And then, finally, they're just, they're just petty. They're, they're, they're so focused on petty, secondary things that they're missing, they're missing the point. Jesus follows their whole, like, ooh, I want to be first, do me first, me first, with this message about the child. Again, there's a lot right there, um, but just it moves right into John responding. John is playing maybe the blame game a little bit here. He's, he's hearing Jesus talk, and he's recognizing that's probably maybe not the attitude we should have had um, with the whole who wants to be first thing. But rather than me be, you know, repentant, me feel the weight of that, how about, oh, I'll tell Jesus something else. Hey, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he didn't follow us. Just kind of, kind of pettiness, you know, like, oh, oh, wait, wait. I'll, I'll, I'll focus on something else. Um, let me pick at things that are happening that maybe don't suit us um, and Jesus' response is not one of, thank you for letting me know, I will go deal with that. But it is Jesus simply saying, he's thankful that people are doing the work of God. Go do the work of God. Don't worry about people usurping your place. Don't worry about your, your status. How often do we get caught up with petty, trivial things, maybe interpersonal things, disunity among brothers and sisters who we have been made more like anybody else on earth. Like the unity that we have as, as sons and daughters, as, as brothers and sisters, uh, surpasses familial ties. Lots of things. We see that all through this passage too. Jesus telling them, listen, you know, if you're going to follow me, then you have to say no to these things. That those things don't become the most important anymore. So a few, a few things that, again, we have run out of time, but things that I would like all of us to take and con uh, continue to consider as we think about not just um, the message here in Luke, but that it is playing out. It played out into the work of the disciples in the church in, ask, in Acts when God gave them the Spirit. Uh, he gave them authority and power, the Great Commission, to, as they were going, be making disciples, be disciples that are making disciples. And he reminds them that this will be difficult, and yet he promises them victory, promises them power. Um, if you have time, read through 9, 10, 11. Um, there are lots of things there, um, and this is really like one of those two or three week type of messages to dig through all the way through like chapter 17. Um, there's some good stuff there too, but um, just take time to think on these truths again, I would ask, um, and apply them to the here and now. Are you living the rest of this day? Are your plans for this week ones in which you recognize that you find yourself already a child of God, already given power and authority to be ministers of reconciliation, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness to light? Are you are you living like the already is here? Do you get that? Is there a power in, in what you're doing because you are proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of the kingdom? And you don't just need to set aside time to do the spiritual stuff, right? Like, all right, I got a good, good short day of work, so I got extra time to now do the kingdom stuff. No, start to understand how that infiltrates every aspect of life. That 
gospel of the kingdom restores all of life. It starts now. It runs through everything, every responsibility, every sphere you have. But don't go uh, overly victorious. Don't go thinking that you can just, you know, so let it be said, so let it be done, and everybody's going to just bow and follow and listen and change. We understand that the message we speak, the life that we live, is one in which uh, there's suffering, there's difficulty, and yet the power comes through those things. We endure, we are sanctified because of those things. They're not mistakes. That is the way Christ's kingdom comes in us and in this world. We need to stop. I want to keep going, but we need to stop. As much as I would love to keep going because Stacy's teaching kids today, so we just keep rolling with it. Um, but take these things, work them out in your life groups. Take time in your life groups to sit and say, like, what does it mean to be sent ones? How can we learn from these people? How can we learn from the book of Acts? How can we see all of the things we're doing in life as part of this proclaiming and demonstrating? That's, that's who you are. Okay? We like to define ourselves by a lot of different things, but this is primarily who we are. How do we understand what we're doing in light of that? So work them out in life together as the church in the coming weeks. Um, the things we're talking about, praying about, planning for, for the rest of the year, they're not going to happen by us doing two services on Sunday. They're not going to happen by us having some you know, good methods or good plans. They're only going to happen when God's people are living, like God's people with ears to hear, or eyes to see, going in power that's only from him to just speak truth and live a life that demonstrates that truth. That's what we need to be focusing on in, in the months ahead. Okay, let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you that we find ourselves uh, your own. You have made us your own. You have called us prophets, priests, and kings. It doesn't show itself in all the ways that we think of when we think of prophets and priests and kings, and yet you have given us that power through your Spirit to humbly but boldly speak truth, to see your Spirit change us. There's nothing that we can do to make this happen other than following you, following our King and our Master, Jesus. So as we go, God, it's not about just trying harder or changing. It is recognizing where we're weak and asking for you to cause unbelief in us. But God, ultimately, just help us to consider Jesus. Help us to go as his people where it is without a doubt the case that we are your people. Jesus did these things. He was sent by you, Father. He experienced suffering, hardship, glory, power. And God, he did it with the joy that was set before him, knowing that it would all culminate in a people redeemed, a creation redeemed, true, final, complete joy and rest. And we're heading down that journey too, God. So may it be a joyous journey in the midst of difficulty. Help us to see things for what they are in light of your kingdom come. Guide us as a church, God, we pray. It's in Christ's name we ask, amen.